The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. Let's take a quick survey this morning. How many of you enjoy flying? How many of you hate flying? All right, now I'm, I'm not talking about the let's sit inside this, this cramped tube of steel for the next few hours while our back aches and we wish that we could sleep but for the life of us can't, but I'm talking about just the act itself, you know, sitting in that plane and, and kind of creeping down the tarmac and, and, and getting lined up where you're going to taxi down the runway and, and then you're waiting for it, you're waiting for it, you're waiting for it, and then you get that, that, that whine going on in the engines. And then the acceleration kicks in and it just drives you back in your seat like when I'm in my four-cylinder Saturn. It's just like that. But then you're going down the runway and you're thinking to yourself, there is no way in the world this soda can that I'm trapped in that weighs half a million pounds can possibly be going fast enough to actually leave the ground. And about the time you're convinced you're going to die, the nose goes up and then the ground just kind of drops away from you. And you realize, all right, I'm flying in this half million pound soda can that has a couple of tinfoil wings sticking out here. But it gets better because every plane that I've been on, none of them have ever taken off and reached altitude going in a straight line. They always turn right or to the left. And so you're sitting there and you're just like, oh, I'm flying and my ears are popping and I've got my gum and that's good. And I have a window seat. And and you realize, okay, I'm looking out this side and there's nothing but clouds or, or blue sky. And then you look out this window and you're like, wait a minute, I'm staring at the ground and there's just something not right about seeing space out of this window and ground out of this window. But I love absolutely love watching the the cars become the size of ants and cities become these blurs on the landscape and rivers become threads that just eventually disappear i'm like a kid on a roller coaster but i live my life like a kid on a roller coaster so maybe it's not about flying maybe i'm just like a kid on a roller coaster but i love to fly i love to see that view from thirty thousand feet and just kind of look at the expanse of the of the really small globe beneath me but you realize though that that as awesome as that view is from 30,000 feet in the air, the only way you're going to get that view is if you sacrifice the, the on-ground view. See, from that airplane, you can't interact with people that you just met at the park. You can't sit and appreciate the architecture of this awesome building. You can't even look at a beautiful oak tree sitting in a field somewhere. You can't see any of that, but all you can see is, depending on your flight, maybe some cornfields, uh, if you're flying over Indiana, uh, or you might see some you know, mountain ranges, but you're not going to see the details. You've got the 30,000-foot view, but you really don't know anymore what consists of that view. You don't know the, the little things that comprise that awesome view. You just know what it looks like, but you don't know how it got there or, or what goes into it. And I would tell you this morning that the church of Jesus Christ is kind of the same way. I mean, we know what exists, and we know big picture why it exists. The church exists to worship Jesus. He has saved us. We'll spend eternity worshiping Him, worshiping the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But where did the church come from? And what did it do once it popped into existence? I mean, yes, everything the church does through the Spirit of God is an act of worship, but but what do these acts look like? From where comes the motivation for these acts? And, And how do we get to where we are now? I mean, we know that the church began sometime before today, but where exactly and where is it going? How did Life Journey Church get here? How is Grace Church going to arrive in Waynesboro? These are some of the questions on my mind this morning as we dive into Acts chapter 2. So let's turn there. As ironically enough, we do something of a 30,000-foot view over top of this passage in hopes of getting a little bit of clarity on the ground level of where we are. Much of what I'm reading today will be on screen. Some of it will not. So I encourage you, turn in your Bible or on your smartphone, your iPad, however you want to get there, go to Acts chapter 2. 
Uh, pretty cool morning for you. I get to preach somebody else's message. So that's already a win. But it does mean there's going to be a lot of reading. Not all of it's going to be on screen. So hopefully I will not lose you. So as you turn to Acts chapter 2 and your copy of God's Word, let me just catch us up to speed a little bit. If it's your first time here, maybe your first time in a long time, Life Journey Church is in a phenomenal state of transition. Two weeks ago, we announced to the church that we're rolling out a new church plant across the mountain range into Waynesboro. And we timed that announcement to coincide with where we are in the Scriptures so that as we follow the resurrection of Christ, as we see His ascension into heaven, as we see His final commandments for His disciples, then we're now able to see really where the New Testament church came into existence. Because apart from that, we wouldn't be here. But we're not there just yet. Because remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, And to the end of the earth. But he said, wait, you just need to wait in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere. And then last week we saw the importance of team. Jesus was a team leader. He was a team developer. He had all kinds of teams. We found that the church as a whole, all of us, all of his disciples, are part of his team. Which means that if we're not exercising our gifts in the capacity that God has built us to, then this team is not going to function as healthily or as productively as we could. As we move into chapter 2, we find now that 120 or so of Jesus' disciples are gathered together in this one house, this building. Some scholars think that it may have been the temple, but they're all gathered together in one place with one mind and one accord on the day of Pentecost. Now, we need to stop and unpack that a little bit, because if you don't get this, the rest of what's going to happen in this chapter is going to be lost on you. See, Pentecost is the Greek name given to the Shavuot, or the Hebrew word for Greek, and it signifies the Hebrew Feast of Weeks. Doing a little Old Testament history here. The Feast of Weeks was one of the biggest festivals in the life of God's people of Israel. It's something they celebrated every year. And it commemorates the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. Now think back to that day. I know that we've not covered that as a church yet, but I just want to give you a brief snapshot snapshot of what happened that day when God gave his law to Moses. See, Moses and Aaron at this point had led Israel out of Egypt. They were now free outside of Egypt. Moses was on Mount Sinai communicating with God, receiving the law given by God. When Moses comes back down off the mountain, many of you already know what's going on, but for those of you that don't, when he comes back off the mountain, he finds the people of Israel worshiping this golden calf that they had made by taking all their jewelry, melting it together, forming this thing. And then they were saying, this is the God that led us out of Egypt. I'm like, now wait a second, you just melted all of your gold and you made this thing and it's just sitting there and you're worshiping it saying that, that, okay, Moses is on top of this mountain that's engulfed in smoke talking to God. You just built this cap, but you're saying that this is the God that led you out of Egypt. And so they're worshiping this thing. Moses comes down sees what's going on, and he takes this golden calf and he grinds it into powder, mixes it with water, and makes the people drink it. This, this is going to be your God? Take this God within you. Drink this God down and see what it does for you. And then he organizes some of the Levites, some of the men of the priesthood class, and they go through the crowd of this congregation of Israel, and they kill 3,000 men, 3,000 people for breaking the first commandment that God hadn't even finished giving to Moses, which was, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so this Feast of Weeks commemorated the giving of the law of Mount Sinai, but I don't know if they realized that what they were doing was actually commemorating the day that God gave the law to Moses, but at the same time, from day one, they had broken God's commandment. They had to eat their God, they had to drink this God down, and 3,000 of them died. But for some reason, they want to commemorate this. 
And so that's what's going on now in Jerusalem some almost 50 days after the Passover. So here are Jesus' followers, men, women, many who had been with him from day one of his ministry. It's been some nine, ten days since Jesus ascended back into heaven. And now they're just kind of hanging out in Jerusalem wondering, what are we supposed to be doing? Because right now we're about to celebrate this festival that that commemorates the embodiment of the old covenant. We're going to celebrate God giving the law to Moses. But, But do you remember what Jesus said at the Last Supper as he broke the bread? And as he poured the wine, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. And so Jesus said shortly before his crucifixion that there's another covenant coming. There's something new coming. But this wasn't the first time that we ever hear mention of this new covenant coming. We've covered before in Ezekiel chapter 36. We've looked elsewhere at the prophesied new covenant that was to come. Let me read for you Jeremiah's words as Jeremiah speaks through God, or rather God speaks through Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we're not going to have it on screen. You're welcome to flip there. You can look at it later. But this is what God says. The pre-incarnate Yahweh says through Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Bethlehem, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. I had to lead them. They couldn't even walk themselves. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That was the promised new covenant. So picture this with me. Here are Jesus' followers. They're all Jewish, all guilty of breaking this covenant that was embodied by the Mosaic Law. All of them huddled in a room waiting for something because Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem because there's something else that's coming. And so here it is, the day of Pentecost, which is built to commemorate, really, the old covenant. But Jesus said something else was coming. And we see here that God was through with his old covenant. Luke tells us as they were gathered there that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And all the Baptists in here just started squirming a little bit. But something big is happening here and these men, all of them, the women, everybody there were speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. But, but it wasn't that they were speaking this unknown heavenly language. It wasn't as though they were speaking something that, that nobody could recognize because as you walk through Acts chapter 2, what happens are these followers of Christ spill out of this house onto the street and all of a sudden they start to draw a crowd. Because in Jerusalem at this time celebrating the Feast of Weeks, Luke tells us that there are devout Jews from every nation under the sun. And so they're hearing this group of Christ followers who had been kind of tucked away in this house, they're hearing them spill out on the streets, glorifying God because they realize we're we're in, this is it, the new covenant's here, the Holy Spirit's upon us and indwells us, and they're worshiping God. And all of these people who don't live in Jerusalem, who don't speak natively the language of Jerusalem, are hearing the words of God in their their own tongue. And they're like, I don't understand. Aren't these men Galileans? Why do they know our languages? 
And some of them were like, well, what does this mean? And others were local Jews, and they heard their fellow local Jews speaking languages that they didn't know what they were saying. And so their response was, well, maybe they're just drunk. Maybe they're having themselves a good time. They're making up this language. They're all plastered, and they're just being drunk. But then Peter says, you know, Jesus, you'll never wash my feet, Peter. The, uh, I'll never deny you, Peter. The, if that's really you, call me out of the boat and I can do what you can do, but I can do it better, Peter. Peter speaks, and this is what he says. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Listen to me. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. It's prayer time, not party time. But this, everything that you're seeing, this is what was told to us through the prophet Joel. And then Peter, an uneducated, simple fisherman, begins to eloquently spoke, spoke, quote, Scripture. This is what he says. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, Peter is referencing Joel who's prophesying this, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter is quoting all of this from the prophet Joel. And what's amazing isn't simply that Peter can quote this, but Peter understands that everything that they're experiencing, everything that had just happened to them was a direct fulfillment of this prophecy. Peter again directly addresses the Jewish crowd around him, and he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Listen. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The cross was never plan B. I cannot stress that enough. Delivered up, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosened the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then Peter quotes more of the Old Testament, this time through the Psalms, quoting David who wrote, I saw the Lord always before me. Now David's now talking about the coming Messiah. I saw him always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. David says, you're not going to let the Holy One of Israel decay, to be corrupted, to perish. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then Peter draws all of this logic together. He, he draws from Joel who says that, that everything that Joel said was going to happen, you're seeing happen. Everything that David said about the Messiah, you've seen in Jesus. And this is what he says. I'm just reading his words. He says in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. 
So Peter says that David was not talking about himself, and we know he wasn't because David still didn't bury. David was talking about the Messiah. Christ would not be abandoned to Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up. Peter says, and all of us are witnesses. Verse 33, he continues, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Peter is simply saying that David could not have been talking about himself. David was talking about the greater David, the Messiah. And then he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Now, talk about not your seeker-sensitive message. I mean, this is Peter with the tactfulness of a brick effectively saying everything that you did, everything that you thought was right, everything that you in your religiosity thought you were supposed to, God's erased all of that. God has undone all of that. But look at how they responded to this message. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you, for your children, for for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 40, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, to encourage them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. How about that? On the day of Pentecost, which was to be a celebration of the day that the law was given to Israel at Mount Sinai, a day that was to commemorate that day in history where God's people ground up their false god and took it into themselves, drank it down with water, the day that 3,000 of them died for their rebellion against God, we see God sending His Holy Spirit to indwell His people. And 3,000 of them are saved. I mean, hello? What kind of a flashing neon sign is that? Absolutely, by far, a better covenant. In the space of a day, the church goes from concept to megachurch, which is going to get preaching invitations to every church everywhere in Jerusalem. A little preacher humor. A little jealousy. So Grace Church... Life Journey Church, the churches that we ourselves come from, they're really nothing more than a continuation of this invisible universal church that embodies the new covenant ecclesia, our our called out people. And as we drive forward in our mission of spreading the fame of God and multiplying disciples, groups, and churches, as we proceed to birth this new church out of Life Journey Church, I'd like to spend a few minutes just looking at the means and the message of the early church. I mean, how did they really get there? What was the message? I'd like to note some observations that are as equally true for us today, 2,000 years later, as they were then for that first church. So I'm going to mix things up a little bit. I'm going to put our journey marker on the screen now, and then I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning unpacking it. So our journey marker, our takeaway thought for the week is simply this. Grace is the means and the message of Jesus' church. Grace is the means and the message of Jesus' church. Now, for that to make sense, we have to define what we mean by grace. So some people say that grace is God's unmerited favor. That's a pretty good definition. 
Others would say that it's undeserved kindness or it's, it's people receiving things that, that they didn't earn. And that's true. I like that. But there's another definition that's not original to me, but it's one that I like. And if you define grace acrostically, it would be God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. We need to realize this morning as we move forward and look at this life of the early church in this series, as we see the gracious outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on this day of Pentecost, we need to realize that apart from that gracious outpouring, Pentecost never would have happened, and we would, of course, never be here. And here's what I mean. The word church in the original tongue is ecclesia, or called out ones. But what were these disciples called out from? If we ourselves are part of this universal, invisible, capital C church, if we ourselves are the called out ones, then what have we been called from and where are we now? Well, Peter tells the early church in 1 Peter 2.9, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter, talking to Christians, says you are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you, listen to this, out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We've been called out of darkness and brought into light by God's grace. We've been made a holy nation, set apart from the unbelieving world, but the question is, how does that happen? How does God take a group of people, all of whom are sinful, and just decide to take a group of them and say, well, all of a sudden you're set apart, you're different? How is that even possible? Only by the grace of God within this new covenant, by which He has cut out from us that heart of stone and placed within us that prophesied heart of flesh that is now joined to His Holy Spirit. You talk about God's riches at Christ's expense. How about this new creation that we now have within us that was purchased through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? We're able to visibly see this occur in Acts 2 where Luke told us that there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And as best Luke could describe it, it just looked like these little tongues of fire just going throughout the room and, and landing on these people. Now, fire was often used in the Old Testament to signify the presence of God. We saw it in the burning bush. We saw it as he led Israel through Egypt or through the wilderness. But we also know that fire is used to cleanse, to purify. And so I believe that what we're seeing here is the Holy Spirit essentially marking off all of these disciples and saying, you're mine. I am your God. You are cleansed. And instead of drinking down a ground-up powder form of, the, of a God that Israel worshipped, God himself began to indwell his people. Paul asked the believers in Corinth, he said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? And so one of the biggest, if not arguably the biggest perk of being in the new covenant isn't simply heaven when we die. The Old Testament saints will see heaven. What sets this new covenant apart is that we now have God dwelling within us. It doesn't make us God. It doesn't make us perfect. We know that God does not dwell really within the sinful part of us, but in this new spirit that he has put within us. And we know they were filled by the Spirit because they began to worship God in languages that they had never learned so that those gathering around them heard God being worshipped in their own tongue. On the day of Pentecost, God's people went from relating to God based on what they could do and began to relate to God based on what He had done within them. Definitely a better covenant. And this outpouring of God's Spirit is manifest not just invisibly and internally, but also outwardly. And this is to be expected, because if you go back to Ezekiel 36, God tells Israel, it's not for your sake that I'm going to do this. It's not for your sake that I'm going to do this new creation, but, 
but for the protection of my name because you, a nation who are supposed to be my people, look just like everyone else around you. You can't keep the law. You're sinful. You'll never relate to me based on your works. I'll do that for you. I will draw you to myself, put my spirit within you. And so we see Peter go from being timid, bashful, foot-in-mouth Peter to all of a sudden unabashedly saying, nobody's drunk here. It's only nine in the morning. This is a direct fulfillment of what Joel spoke to us. He's not sitting like a rabbi, gently teaching those. He's standing boldly with confidence and authority. He's all over the place. Joel, Psalms, making an argument for what? Jesus is the divine risen Messiah. The New Covenant Church came into being as an expression of God's grace so that we could be the body of the personification of grace, which is Christ. So you see how that works? God's grace is poured out on us so that we can extend grace to others so that God's grace is poured out. It's this never-ending perpetual cycle. The anthem that should ring from our lips as God's people is grace. Never works, never religion, but grace. If you follow Peter's sermon, it essentially flows like this. You crucified Jesus, but God raised him up because it would be impossible for Jesus to see corruption. He was holy. He was pure. And we've seen him. You've seen him. The one you crucified. The Messiah who came to bury your sins. The one that you murdered. God has raised him up from the dead. He is Lord. He is Christ. He is Yahweh. He is our Savior. And then something beautiful happens here. Because you've got to remember, these are the same Jews who a month before, 50 days before, when Jesus was on trial, all they could scream was, Crucify Him! Let His blood be on us and our children! Kill Him! Same crowd that now when they hear what they've done, they're cut to the heart. How do you cut a heart of stone? How do you see faithless people becoming faithful people? How do dead people receive revelation? See, God in His mercy and grace even then was continuing to pour out His grace on these people so that finally for the first time the light bulb went on and they could see. Brothers, what what must I do? Yes, I believe that He is the Messiah and we were wrong. We did. What do we do? If He's the one that came to redeem us and we murdered Him and now He's rose and ascended, what do we do? What must we do to be saved? And Peter says, forsake trusting in yourself. Stop thinking that you can be good enough to have God say, you've done good enough, let's hang out for eternity. It's the same message that the church echoes even now to the unbelievers around us. Stop trusting yourself to save yourself. You can't do it. But Christ can. And Peter said, this promise isn't just for you. It's for your kids. It's for those who are far off. Even then, even then, Peter's saying, hey, this new covenant is not just about Israel. It's for anybody that God calls to Himself. From day one of the church's existence, we see that God promises to indeed save everyone He calls to Himself. Not those who most deserve it. Not those who are looking the hardest for God because Paul tells us, there are none that seek God. There are none that do good. There are none righteous. They, they've all turned away. But yet God is graciously, undeservedly, unexplicably calling sinners to Himself. If God's calling you this morning, will you repent and trust Jesus to save you? See, church, it's not our job to save people. It's not our job to twist somebody's arm until they tap out and say, I believe. You can't do it. 
Salvation is a supernatural act by a supernatural God. We are the messengers of a supernatural message through which God is at work. And as Peter shared the message of God's grace, as Peter said, if you turn and repent, you will be saved, it happened. So it's a perpetual cycle. Grace birthed the church. Grace is what is being proclaimed by the church. Is there more in Scripture than that? Yeah. But ultimately, it all points to the death, burial, and perhaps most importantly, the resurrection of Christ. God's riches at Christ's expense. All of it. The birth of that church, our conversion, the birth of this church, the birth of Grace Church, everything that God is currently doing around the globe today is simply a means of grace where He is pouring upon us favor that we never earned, never deserved, but we receive God's riches at Christ's expense. So as our band comes up and prepares to lead us in a couple of closing worship songs, my question for you is this. I mean, where do you fit into this? Are you with that first group of people that, that could see that something big was going on but really didn't understand it? And, and maybe it's time for you to simply say, okay, God, I've tried for my entire life to be good enough. I've tried for my entire life to not need you because I can take care of myself for eternity. Maybe it's time for you, like these men, to come to that point in your life where you say, okay, God, I don't have all the answers. But one thing I do know is that I can't do it on my own. I need Christ to save me. Will you trust Christ this morning? Maybe you're sitting here and you've been here for a while, you're a follower of Christ, but you're not seeing your life marked by the grace that we see in action in the first church. You can't even remember the last time you shared your faith with somebody. I mean, you know you're a follower of Christ, it's important to you, but, but you're not like Peter just standing up and boldly proclaiming the Word of God. You're not sharing your faith. I'm not going to judge you this morning, but maybe what you need to pray is simply, God, I need courage. I need an opportunity. Uh, just, just help me in this. Were you asking that this morning? Jesus told His disciples to stay in Jerusalem until the coming of the Holy Spirit. And once that Holy Spirit came, the church took off like a rocket. Yeah, it had some bumps and bruises. There was persecution. There was division. There was argument. But it was a unified people of God on mission for the kingdom of God. And we've got opportunity for that here in Crozet through Life Journey Church. We've got opportunity in Waynesboro through Grace Church. Will you pray about where God would have you plug in this morning? As you try to figure out, okay, God, how have you built me to be a part of this awesomeness that began 2,000 years ago and continues on even now? Walt and I will be standing up here off to the sides if you want to talk to one of us about anything this morning. Perhaps what it means to trust Christ as Savior, what it means to, to truly let go and repent. Maybe you have a question about how you can serve God, or maybe there's something that has nothing to do with the message this morning, and you just want somebody to pray for you. We'd love to talk to you if you want to meet with us throughout the week. That's fine too. Let's pray this morning, and then we're going to sing and go on about our day. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, it's so awesome to see a reversal of what was done at Sinai as the law was given. As your people were told, do this and receive blessings. And now in this new covenant, we've received every blessing imaginable. Not because of something we've done, but because of what your son did for us. We're no longer a, a spiritless people who have ingested a false God, but we have been indwelt by the living God. And so now the way that we relate to you is through the Spirit within us. So that even when we sin, even when we fail, you've promised to never remember that, to never judge us for it, to never condemn us. So Father, we thank you for that, for that grace. 
Lord, I pray that you give us boldness and courage to simply share our faith, to tell those around us that, that Jesus is the answer for everything, that salvation is only found through him, and that the promise is there that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So Father, help us to continue being your people on mission for your glory and for your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.